Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trend says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's e-u-f-y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. In this episode, I'm joined by Alison Branchet, Chief Marketing Officer at Launch Metrics. Alison was included on Luxury Daily's Luxury Women to Watch in 2019. She was also the Director of Marketing and Communications at IMG Fashion and supported the US expansion for e-commerce giant Netta Forte. And I'll let you in on a secret. I've been pronouncing Netta Forte very wrong for a really long time. In the episode, we talk in particular about how fashion brands are using data, technology, and influencer marketing to support marketing growth. Enjoy the episode. This is Internet Marketing. So I was reading an article that you had written on Forbes. I can't remember the exact title of it right now. I'm sure you'll remind me as we're talking. I'll link to it in the show notes. And there was one paragraph that really stood out to me that I thought would make a really good starting point for the episode today. To quote, at Launch Metrics, we have always strived to bridge the gap not only between fashion and technology, but also between various industry players and hope to support others in their growth. This is why... When the designer and founder of a black-owned and operated clothing brand and a launch, me- um, launch metrics client approached us this season to design a branded runway look as appreciation for our role in supporting their brand, I knew we had achieved our mission. And so I read that and I was like, wow, what is this? Like, how have you supported this particular client? I've not heard of this being done before in this way, this kind of fusion of technology, data fashion, clothing brand. I want to know more about this story. Can you elaborate for me, please? Oh my God, I'm so flattered that you read my Forbes article. Um, Yeah, actually, it's a a beautiful story. It's with um, a US designer, Negris Leblum, and we have been working with him, helping him from our video and photo content team produce content for his shows for so long. But um, one thing we started doing a few years ago was, you know, I don't want to be too fashion-y on the podcast, but obviously this works for any large event, right? Anytime a brand is launching something, they have some type of press showcase where there's content that needs to be created. Um, But the follow-up to that, especially in today's digital landscape, when it comes to digital marketing, it's about amplifying that content. So at Launchmetrics, we have a platform that allows brands to share their content with 2,000 publishers around the world, as well as 50,000 kind of bloggers, stylists, buyers, etc. through our community and network. Um, And 
it's been kind of our mission to, of course, there's like the LVMH, the caring, the Rich Mons, the SLRs, these huge conglomerates and that can afford to pay any type of amount to to get their content into the hands of the right people and have the right tools to do it. But as companies are emerging, small brands, you know, brands that are just one, two, three people working at a company, um, they need that that support that typically could just be offered to large companies. So that's something we've been doing at Launchmetrics is one, educating these smaller brands about how how they can reach these people leveraging technologies and two, providing them with the technology to be able to reach these huge networks of buyer stylist influencers around the world to promote their collections. So it was so flattering um, when they approached us about doing like a launch metrics look on the runway. So yeah, I think it's two seasons ago now we had our first kind of, as we say, catwalk debut. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it's so cute. I actually, he designed these very, I don't know how much you're following this style of fashion, but you know, the pajama look for daytime is actually really, really big. So I was like, we have to get these for everyone at, at work. When we go back to work, it'll be like working from home, but in the office in your pajamas, but designer designed pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking actual physical garments that were inspired by your work together. Uh, that's correct, right? Exactly. I think for him, it was more about just, you know, how a company of our size could actually think about supporting brands. And nowadays, especially when it comes to technology, like there's so much money that brands are investing in technology that I think for smaller businesses, a lot of tech companies overlook them. Um, And we've really dedicated kind of, let's say, a portion of my marketing budget to doing these types of partnerships or support programs so that we can help grow these brands because the Negris Labrums of today are the LVMHs of tomorrow, let's say. So for us, maybe it's a little also opportunistic, but you know, we we can appreciate that not everyone has the money now and we grow as you grow. Mm. And so as a I guess a fashion enthusiast, but also a writer, speaker, having a marketer, having lots of experience in this space. That must have been one of those moments, just uh, taking that last line, saying uh, that you knew you had achieved your mission. I bet for you personally, that was a really satisfying and very, pretty surreal moment because you can never, like I can't really imagine as a marketer thinking that, particularly in the fashion space, oh, I confuse these two things, or these things of marketing, data, technology, and like that ended up being a physical, tangible thing in marketing, particularly digital marketing. We don't often get to experience that kind of physical satisfaction of the, the tangible assets, really. And yet you managed to experience that. I bet that's something you could never have predicted. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just to the fact that um, even if as a consumer of fashion, most of us feel that these fashion brands are so tech forward because they do cool, buzzy things on apps or on their website, or they hear about these viral programs using, I don't know, either virtual reality or I'm trying to think of um, what was so big a few years ago that everyone was doing. We did it at Net-A-Porte where you'd take the app, you'd hold your app over a picture and a hologram type thing would appear. Um, of course, you know, as we're recording this, you and I are sitting in a British heat wave. So (laughs) things that usually come easier to mind in the winter, maybe are a little less today, but, you know, besides those types of buzzy things, I think when we talk about technology and digital transformation for fashion brands, 
the average consumer would be surprised to hear that there's a bit more I don't know if resistance is the word, but hesitation. People feel really comfortable, as I said, like thinking in the concept of how I use an app to buy my red dress or how a really smooth customer experience online should be key as part of your kind of retail and business strategy. But when it comes to things like how do I amplify content from a fashion show, it's key today when you really step back and think about, okay, if everyone's sitting at home, no one's leaving my house, like, how am I going to get my message to my potential customers? Well, it needs to be through some type of digital marketing and digital amplification. But the truth is, is that most brands are still hesitant or they don't know how to do that. So they're maybe hesitant to take up certain technologies. And I would say like to have someone actually approaching us and saying, this has been the best thing. This has changed my business. I want to help communicate upon it. I want to create like a physical moment during my fashion show, which is a huge moment for him as well because he's launching his new collection. He has to sell. He has like this 10-minute window to promote what is going to be his livelihood for the next 6 to 12 months. And he wants to make us a part of it. I mean, it was huge. Hmm. What made me curious coming into this episode is I sat back and thought, I wonder how much data and technology is being used to actually drive design trends, essentially. Because I think like a lot of people, maybe I'm just uh, dumb-minded, narrow-minded. I look at the fashion world. I look at it as an industry full of creatives. And then when you make that association, you don't necessarily think about all of the data that's driving decisions, maybe in the background of industries like that. So I was curious to know from your experience about what you see in the fashion world, do you see data, big data being used to really drive changes in fashion trends? I would say up until recently, data was used when it came to, I'm not sure if this is a foreign word, um, well, or like the concept, because merchandising means so much to so many people. Um, but of course, looking at things like sell-through, different geographies, different kind of um, segmentations of your market, your customer, and your collection, all of that data was was something that many of the bigger brands really dug into as they decided, okay, yes, the designers at like a, let's say a high-end fashion house designed these 100 looks. How do we decide what's the volume that we're ordering of these different looks and where mm. is that volume going in the US, in the UK or Europe or China, et cetera. Um, so that I think has been like a historical part of our industry, but what, you know, more relative to your question about the the design trends is is something that I would absolutely say has become just we're just on the cusp of seeing what can be done. And the truth is again, going back to this concept of, you know, how much is creative led, how much is data led, the the industry is really trying to balance what is the right the mix of the two. Because sometimes if you think about what becomes a trend and viral, it's, it's not necessarily data. It's like a hot moment, right place, right time, yeah. right, right trend. So I think it's something they're still really trying to navigate. It's an interesting you, question that you ask me. And the fact that you don't know this about launch metrics makes it even more interesting. But one of our missions, really, if you look at the different acquisitions that we've made throughout the years, we've actually really been focused on acquiring a unique set of data across fashion, luxury, and beauty with the goal of long-term helping our brands. I don't want to say predict trends, but predict trends. And, you know, I I mentioned before, like how this partnership came up with Negris was really about 
um, the fact that we were shooting content for him. So we have an arm of the Launchmetrics universe that shoots 400 fashion shows every signal season. Um, and all of that content goes to the likes of Harper's, L, Vogue, etc. Um, and it's really interesting for us to see, you know, on one side, we know the type of products that the brands are sending out to this B2B audience, but then it's really interesting to see what these publishers are then publishing for their B2C audience. And our goal long-term is to be able to marry those data and insights to really help the industry predict what is going to be coming up on the horizon, what people are interested in, because our data starts six months before the collections even hit the stores. So it's definitely, it's something, you know, very interesting. I think the fact too, that not just in fashion, but in the world of marketing, personalization is going to be key in the future. And everyone's talking about that. And this concept of how you use data to create not just design choices, but a better personalized experience for your customer and a better product for your customer is, is about, you know, what we're trying to achieve long-term. I hadn't really thought about it that way. So I was thinking very literally about the collection of data to inform styles, essentially new looks, collections. Um, but I see there that there's real value in particularly luxury fashion houses, you're saying there where they produce maybe a hundred pieces or they're trying to understand the demand where and that's where maybe data can be used geographically and for distribution purposes. So are you using data or helping brands use data in that way now for distribution? Yeah, it's already being used. And I think though what you were saying about design trends, I think that's what's on the cusp as well though. So being able to understand, you know, this image or these images of florals um, were all downloaded and tried to be published by XYZ publishers. But then that was the the website page of these publishing houses that had the highest bounce rate. So maybe actually that kind of long tail data or short tail data, but it's really long tail, is something that hopefully could inform brands when I do my purchase of my collection, how deep should I really go into floral? Well, it turns out floral is a big miss. <laughs> so it's crazy to think about. Deep. So it, it it does and doesn't inform design, but I guess the one thing too that was surprising for me as I've grown in my career in fashion is that just because you see a look on a runway doesn't mean actually it will ever get produced. Some of these pieces that the brands are producing are really just let's say for positioning, but they never make it to the stores. So design doesn't stop just at that first iteration, but it continues for a few more weeks and months before production happens. Mm. Does the potential for data being used to predict trends and then ultimately create styles as a con- putting your consumer brain on or your consumer hat on, does that kind of excite you, scare you? What do you think about that? I, it's probably 50-50. I think I, <laughs> I've had this conversation so many times, especially when it comes to how everyone's obsessed with personalization. Mm. And you think about I mean, I'm I'm not a smoker and no judgment to people that are, even if it's very unhealthy. But if you think about like in the heyday of advertising, when like cigarette companies could do anything they wanted to do for advertising, I, I just think of this because I recently finally finished Mad Men. Um, <laughs> um, you know, you think about, wow, these big companies, what could they have done with this type of data and personalization back then when they had no restrictions on advertising? 
And it does scare you with, you know, when they know so much about you, how do you know what's free will or what's the influence of marketing? So I understand that um, you won't be able to go into all the details about the propri- proprietary, I can never say that word, proprietary, um, the metrics that you use within your platform. But I am really curious to know, just thinking about that data collection aspect that we just talked about there, are fashion brands, luxury good brands, beauty brands primarily looking at social? It would make sense to me that they're primarily looking at social media platforms to collect this data. But maybe are there any other sources of data that might be surprising for me and our listeners to hear about that um, fashion brands in particular are looking at? Um, For us, with our customers, we're helping them look at print, online, and social media data. Um, Maybe one interesting thing for the listeners to know, too, when we talk about social media data today, it's not just your social media data, which theoretically they're not even looking at anymore because you have to be a business account or a creator for them to access your personal data. Um, But we're looking at things like, you know, in this new world, when I work with PR people, one tip or piece of advice I give them is that how public relations used to work is you'd send out a press release or before you send out a press release, you would negotiate with a media outlet. I'm going to give you this big exclusive story about the launch of XYZ. And you're going to give me a big piece in the New York Times on the cover. I don't know, something that would be the dream. Nowadays, because most people are, you know, we've seen this huge shift to consuming media online, but also via social media. And one really successful, let's say, channel and voice for brands is their own social media channel or for the owned social media channels of these publishing houses. So when we talk about social media, I think that's interesting for, for consumers to think about because many of us are subscribing and following like our, our favorite media outlets. Um, and that's how you see an article that you want to read. So I guess people are really scared since the, the whole Cambridge Analytica uh, scandal about you know how brands are using their data through social media. But actually, there's a lot of really interesting social media data that brands can get just through other B2B parties too. So we're helping them, as I said, print online social media. And we're looking at all types of business accounts, like how influencers, I know it's a topic we're going to cover today, are creating value for these brands, how traditional media are creating value, um, celebrities. Another thing that's really grown big in the last, let's say, five to 10 years is um, partners. So if you think about now, most retailers have their own editorial teams and are generating huge amounts of content. And what's really interesting about that is that they're marketing to people that already have the disposable income to buy your product because they sell your product. Um, So they know who their customer is. And if you're following that brand, let's say here in London, it would be someone like Harrods or Net-A-Porter. You obviously like their products. So it's a great audience for your for a brand, um, and then the brand's own social media channels. I've just realized that you're at the cross-section of both the print and the online, which is, must be a fascinating place to be because you must see both the... I, I think you must work with the online media professionals and think, oh, there are so many great things that you can learn from the offline professionals. And likewise, from the print professionals, you must think, oh, you can really revolutionize what you're doing online. Do you find yourself in that position a lot? I think it's more about tactics, but I would say now how businesses are being set up, um, it really is kind of one team working all together. There's not a ton of editorial outlets still that segment their staff by print versus online. That's also part of the 
moment that we live in that companies are just trying to be more efficient. And typically, let's say you're doing a big story for a glossy magazine, maybe you'll do the glossier version in the print magazine, but then perhaps you'll have that behind the scenes content or, you know, at, at, at the end of a Marvel movie, you know, there's always those like trailers or things that you didn't see throughout the film. Um, so that's what they'll do online. So that's really interesting. And uh, one of the reasons that I was so excited to talk to you about particularly the fashion sector, because uh, I don't really work or have too much experience in this sector. And a lot of my work is online based. And so I forget the weight, particularly maybe in uh, the world of luxury goods or luxury fashion. I'm assuming that based on what you're saying there, that the publications, the actual traditional press and media in that section still holds a lot of weight. There's still a lot of demand and maybe vanity attached to featuring in those publications. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, if we look at, let's say, the luxury watch industry, we know that print media is still quite key. So it is really interesting when we look at some of these conglomerates that own both fashion luxury and more the hard luxury brands and beauty brands. And you can really see this huge segmentation of what's important. So if we look at like, let's say an LVMH, we know that for the hard luxury brands, these watch brands, traditional and print media still has a lot of value, even if online media is growing. But if we look at a beauty brand, we know that social media drives most of the media impact value. So I think as an executive say, you really have to be extra savvy in your niche in the market. So it's always easy and hard to move from industry to industry. But I think now marketing doesn't mean marketing in the same way for every sector that we work in. Going into the influencer marketing aspect of this, and again, you were talking about this just a moment ago, you 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 distinguished between influencers, celebrities, and I think you said partners as you were talking. And I recall Mm -hmm. reading about, I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, but when I was looking through the Launch Metrics website, there was a section maybe on voices and about five distinct voices that you can align within your marketing strategy, essentially. I found that fascinating, just the framing of voices. And I just wondered if you're able to speak on how you frame voices at launch metrics and maybe how people can align these voices with different aspects of their marketing strategy. You know, um, everyone has that moment in their career where you're working really late at night and you're sitting there with a bunch of your colleagues, like thinking of this revolutionary idea. I mean, you don't know at the moment you're thinking of this revolutionary idea, but you're brainstorming, you know, what could be. And I remember we were working, it was one of our first times doing this big data report. We had crawled all of this data for 400 fashion shows. And we were trying to see like, where's the industry industry going? What's really interesting here? And we started looking at the different strategies that all these brands had taken for their different shows. You know, one did something very celebrity focused. One did something that was completely focused on their own social media channels. And we started to dig in like, why? Like, what is, what is the goal of these different kind of paths that you could take if it's just a fashion show, right? Everyone's, we, we, you would assume everyone has the same goal. And that's really when it kind of came to mind, this concept of voices. And it really hit us that, you know, if you think of a traditional marketing funnel, you go through the stages of like awareness, consideration, conversion. So in that same vein, there are these different voices that are helping activate your potential customer as they're going through that customer journey. And that's really how 
the idea and concept of voices came about. So for us at the very top of the funnel, there's people like traditional media and celebrities who, when you're trying to cast that very wide net, so think about a brand that's expanding categories. So that season, there was this designer, Tom Ford, very well known in the luxury world, sells like, let's say $2,000 shirts. Um, And he was launching a perfume collection. Well, Perfume, of course, can be bought by the people that buy $2,000 shirts, but you need a lot more people to buy perfume for it to be successful than to buy your clothes. So how he generated buzz and awareness was leveraging traditional media that has obviously a much wider reach or celebrities that have a much wider reach than, let's say, influencers or a brand's owned media channel. And the goal of that is really to create that awareness, to create that um acquisition at the top of the funnel. Then we started to look at, you know, of course, everyone's talking about influencer marketing, but what what is the goal of influencer marketing? You know, and when we looked at the different strategies, we saw that, okay, so you've, you've you know, told everyone about this perfume, you've created a lot of noise about it, but now these people that have never shopped your brand before, how do they know that you're legitimate, right? Mm-hmm. How do they know that you're a trustworthy brand, that you're a cool brand? Who can help legitimize your brand in their world. And that's really the goal we saw for influencers. Then the the fourth voice that we looked at, as I mentioned, was partners, right? So partners was all about consideration and conversion. Um, so, you know, you've brought in this new audience, you've had like their peers tell them they should buy your product. Now they're ready to buy your product, you know, who can help create that conversion and consideration while well, the retailers that sell the product, obviously. And then the fifth voice is the brand's owned media. So we always joke, who better to buy a Rolex than someone who already owns a Rolex? You know, today, the goal of a brand's owned media channel is to create this kind of, if they do it well, this sense of community so that you can continue to increase your share of wallet with these customers as opposed to, you know, next time, do they need they need to buy a handbag? Do they buy another Chanel bag, another Rolex? Or do they go to, you know... I don't know, Gigi Lecoute or Prada. That was really like where we came up with the concept of voices, what the what the voices really help brands achieve or understand, um, and really gives them a framework to think about, you know, how they could be organizing their marketing strategies and how to select, you know, what voice is key for that strategy. Yeah, framework is the word that comes to mind for me as I was reading through this content. It gave me a framework to view influencer marketing in a way that I hadn't really adopted before. And it was like an aha moment for me reading through the content. It was a really cool thing to see and it simplified the world of influencer marketing. So I'd recommend there's just, um, I think there's a little bit of content on your site. Again, I'll link to it in the show notes and you can take this podcast and read the rest of Alison and Launchmetrics material if you want to learn more about this framework and the concepts. But I found that to be really, really helpful. And it got me thinking about the differences between, in particular, influencers and celebrities. You've just explained a little bit about that there. Are there any brands that come to mind for you that you think do the influencer marketing part particularly well? I would say one brand that is always topping the chart for is Dior. In this global world that we live in, too many brands often 
have this copy paste approach. That's really a harsh way of critiquing how people do influencer marketing, but they believe if it works, you know, wherever they're based, Paris, New York, then it should work in London or Milan or in Shanghai. And the truth is that it doesn't, especially if we think about East to West, whereas Dior has taken what we call a global approach when it comes to their influencer marketing tactics. So they don't just look for one global ambassador that works in the West and the East, but they really think about like who is going to drive their performance in each market and come up with a unique strategy that's not just influencer specific, but also platform and content specific. So whether it's partnering with a K-pop star in Korea or finding a KOL in China that really you know, speaks to, let's say, the beauty community for Dior Beauty. They do such a great job of, again, thinking right channel, right market, right voice. One thing that I wanted to know is whether influencer marketing uh, works for luxury brands. And the reason I ask that, one of the attractions of luxury brands is exclusivity. And so I imagine that there are plenty, plenty of luxury brands that are very restrictive about the influencers that they work with. Perhaps there will only be macro influencers. You would never uh, assume see luxury brands work with micro influencers. So for someone like Dior, you mentioned there they may work with like a K-pop star. Are we talking someone like Dior are only likely to work with macro influencers Do you ever see luxury brands working with micro-influencers? Yeah, absolutely. Even within the influencer, let's say, category or the influencer voice, you know, again, there are different goals for each type of influencer. Um, We see with this mega influencer or all-star influencer, as we call them at Launchmetrics, there really is this kind of momentum to create amplification. Whereas we see with micro-influencers, there's this kind of more focus on proximity, having a really closed niche audience. So maybe for a big launch, they're going to have someone like a Chiara Ferrani, who's a big fashion blogger out of Italy, or Austin Lee, who's known as the lipstick king of China, um, doing something that creates a lot of buzz, let's say if it was a live stream. But then potentially, you know, if they want to do something really local and niche in a city like Barcelona, they would use a local Barcelona influencer that has a smaller community to activate that community. The accessibility of influencers and the number of influencers, and you just talked there about different types of influencers, because it's become so prominent within marketing, we do often see influencers work with multiple potentially competing brands, competitors. And I was curious to know whether you had any data or maybe anecdotal evidence to suggest that Does a brand that works with the same influencer, so competing brands working with the same influencer, could that potentially impact the perceived value of a brand? I imagine it would, particularly in the luxury space. So many ways to answer this question. So the first thing is, it depends on the category. If you think about a woman's makeup bag, no one opens their makeup bag and they have all MAC Cosmetics or or all Dior, Dior Beauty or all Fenty, you know, everyone has, you know, I don't know, their favorite mascara, maybe it's a Dior mascara, they have the concealer from Fenty, they have their Urban Decay eyeshadow palette. Right. So in that respect, I, I think the audience when it comes to beauty is much more forgiving If you watch a YouTube tutorial about, you know, how to get the best smoky eye or how to get the best summer wedding look, 
you're not going to be surprised to see eight different cosmetics brands yeah. mentioned. And if you saw one, you'd actually be more turned off than seeing eight. Yeah. That said, a trend that we're starting to see um, that is working really well, I think when it comes more to fashion, is that continuity of influencer relationships with brands. So previously, when influencer marketing became big, actually, there was this craze by um, brands to just work with more and more and more and more and more influencers. I think yeah. everyone was just trying to like capture a share of market. Um, but nowadays, because consumers have become so fickle, and it's not that consumers have become so fickle, we've become smarter. <laughs> like we know you're paying or you're, you're gifting. Yeah. So we just want to know that those relationships are authentic. And because of that, brands are working harder to maintain these authentic relationships versus like having new people every quarter or every semester. Um, so that continuity is actually becoming more key. Um, but that doesn't mean going back to my beauty example that you couldn't have continuity with a few people. That's a really great answer to that question. And one of the reasons I asked it was because anecdotally speaking myself is that I've seen brands that are maybe reluctant to work with certain influencers because that influencer has worked with the competitor. But actually, as you said, it kind of sometimes can speak to the authenticity, which is the key to all of this, is that as long as that collaboration is authentic, like you said, it actually could be a, a real positive thing to work with an influencer that has worked with other brands. And it's only going to help reinforce an element of trust, I think, as well. I think that's a, a really great answer to that question. You mentioned as you were talking there, uh, semesters and quarters. And this was another thing on my mind. I thought about the fashion world, the perception that, uh, and maybe the reality, I don't know, that the, the fashion world moves so fast that there are new styles every season. And that got me thinking about how strategically brands plan for campaigns because marketing strategy and marketing campaigns is also a thread that I saw throughout the content that you produced. Are fashion brands planning campaigns on a quarterly basis? Do you see people planning more, uh, more longer term? Is it more difficult to plan in the fashion world longer term because styles change so quickly? What do you see? I would say brands are planning all the time, but it just it's a different different level of planning. So the large scale campaigns are something like six to twelve months, sometimes more in the making, depending on what it is. I mean, I remember when we launched Carl um, Lagerfeld's line in Etaporte, it was definitely probably more than twelve months in the making, but it came to marketing maybe just under twelve months in the making for the launch. Um, but then of course, even if brands have these huge campaigns or huge productions that happen every six to 12 months, they have, you know, capsule questions that are coming out. They have, um, pop-up stores. I mean, there's always something happening and then each market adapts that our overarching strategy to something local. So, you know, you could be having something in Barcelona this week, something in Rome next week and something in New York the week after. It's quite yeah. crazy. That's one of the reasons I asked this question, actually, is because particularly with the influencer marketing, I see a lot of people that work with an influencer for a short period of time, maybe for a single product launch or in the fashion world, it might be a single collection. And it's um, it can feel very transactional sometimes. And then you see with that brand work with a different influencer for the next campaign. And I'm kind of interested to know if there are any examples that come to mind for you about brands that have worked with influencers successfully over a longer period of time. Does anyone come to mind? That's a good question. I mean, as I said, I think some of these brands like a Dior have done a good job of trying to maintain. And they really in the fashion luxury space are the leader when it comes to influencer marketing and how they activate influencers. 
But I also think, you know, if you look at someone like Chiara Ferrani, she had done stuff. Oh, also, I love the Patrick Starr example, too. Um, Patrick was a MAC Cosmetics counter salesperson. Then he became an influencer. Then they collaborated with him. And even as they've he's launched his collection, I remember him telling me that they've given him a lot of support too. So I think in our industry, it's all about relationships. And so even if there's not the same level of, let's say, partnership or collaboration, I think once you collaborate with a brand, you stay in their universe. And LVMH does that in general quite well. I think I was reading the 2020 uh, State of Influencer Marketing Report in preparation for this podcast. And there was a really interesting stat. I think it was somewhere along the lines of 48% of influencers would be willing to work with a brand without a fee if they believed in their values, something to that effect. And that really stood out to me. And I was just interested if there are any, if there are any tips or any advice that you have for maybe smaller brands, particularly in the fashion space or maybe in the luxury goods space that maybe don't have big budgets to spend on influencer marketing. What might you recommend as an alternative for them? And I say that with um, user-generated content just as a starting point in mind. What what examples of brands utilizing user-generated content have you seen that might be worthwhile me and our listeners going away and exploring? I can answer a bit of the first part of the question and then move on to user-generated content. But, you know, one thing for all of us to keep in mind is that influencers, how they make their livelihood is that they have this engaged group or this engaged community And their job is every day to continue to engage these people and to have these people spread the word about them or get discovered by other potential community members. Um, And how they do that is through unique content. So, of course, they want to make money and get paid, but they also need opportunities to create really unique and compelling content. Um, And that means giving them the opportunity to experience some really behind the scenes moments. Um, That means helping them, you know, provide them with resources to create content. That means maybe taking them on a trip somewhere really unique that they'd have a backdrop to create unique content. So I think there's an opportunity for brands to think outside the box of things besides just giving them money that could provide them with these opportunities to create that content that their audience would be really interested in watching so that they can fulfill their daily mission of putting out unique, fun, and entertaining or inspiring or educational content. So that's the first thing. Then um, how can companies inspire people, whether they're influencers, micro-influencers, key opinion customers, et cetera, to create user-generated content about their brand? Um, I think these challenges are something that's become really big since the pandemic, you know, Pretty Little Thing did the whole stay at home campaign um, during the pandemic. And it was like, take pictures of yourself in your pajama, tag them, use this hashtag. And actually, it was widely successful. Obviously, TikTok, their algorithm is built on challenges. So whether it's participating in a TikTok challenge or creating your own challenge, um, the platform's algorithm really favors people getting involved in that. So brands should think about challenges that they could launch and get in on the challenges that are already happening. Um, And I think that's really big. 
Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, thinking about challenges. And I'm glad you mentioned challenges here, because in closing for this episode, I wanted to speak a little bit more broadly about, it could be across all of social platforms, influencer marketing or otherwise. I know you're really interested in technology. You have this marketing background. I'm interested in formats or emerging technology that you're excited by. So are there any particular, whether it's social media functionality or emerging technology or apps that stand out to you that you're just really excited by and you think are going to become really important or that you just recommend people go away and experiment with because you're curious about them? I feel like from a business perspective, my advice is that it's okay to be excited by all of these new platforms. I think, you know, you've asked a few questions about how do people that are starting their businesses get involved in, I don't know, different platforms, different kind of channels, different voices. Um, I mean, I think I could answer this question by talking about short form. I could talk about the metaverse, but I guess I want to have a, a bit of hesitation for people that are listening and hoping to take away something for their businesses that don't feel the pressure to adapt to everything right now. I mean, everyone is obsessed with NFTs and talking about the metaverse. And I think it's really interesting as a consumer or as, a, or as, as you said, like a tech and fashion enthusiast to watch the space. But you can see many of the bigger brands even saying that for them, they, they're also watching the space because they feel like to represent their brand in the way that they really feel articulates their brand value, the metaverse isn't ready. And so it's okay sometimes to not have that, you know, be the first person at the, at the beginning of the queue and to wait and see and to let other people fail first, especially when you're a small business and you don't have a ton of resources. I think the thing people need to keep in mind is, you know, if you start something like a TikTok channel, how are you going to maintain it? How are you going to create all of this content? So, you know, if you're thinking of something like short form video, why not partner with, as you said before, an influencer or a different voice to think of how you can test the waters on their channel? Um, so I, I, I know I get asked a lot of questions of like, you know, what's next, what we should be looking at, but it really depends on people's business and their resources. And I want to kind of heed that too, because I don't want people to feel pressure to, to jump to what's next. And I think there is, because the digital landscape moves so quickly, I think people really do worry all the time they're going to be, you know, last to the show, but sometimes last still feels like you've gotten there just on time. I think that reinforces the point of the voices framework as well and why I find that so useful. Um, so I think you have that content there to support businesses and that kind of structure there to support businesses within that framework. I'm really asking the question mostly out of curiosity from a, someone that likes also likes technology, features, functionality, and more through the consumer lens. I'm really interested to know as someone in this space, what do you find that you're engaging most with? What's piquing your interest at the moment? I think the the concept of live stream shopping, I'm interested to see where it goes. We've already seen a ton of value in it for China. And funny enough, China is really the trendsetter when it comes to social media trends. I mean, Doyen, which is the Chinese version of TikTok, was way more popular there before TikTok was batting a, a lash in the West. So I'm curious to see kind of some of the impact that some of those viral videos are going to have here in the West moving forward. Alison, uh, we're getting towards the end of our time together here. So if anyone wants to explore this topic further, I know you've written some articles for Forbes, which I'll link to. 
and you produce content at launch metrics. But are there any other resources that you'd recommend for fashion brands to explore in this space, particularly if they're curious about influencer marketing and where to get started? I guess I would say one tip I always give people is make sure you get your own house in order before you ask people to promote your house. And by that, I mean, you know, your owned media channel is your virtual calling card of who your brand is. And with that in mind, you know, an influencer will always go check out your social handles before they agree to work with you. And they want to make sure that you virtually represent something that their audience would also feel is on par with the influencer themselves. So before you kind of hit the pavement or hit the wallet, <laughs> um, trying to get new influencers on board to, to collaborate with you, I would say start with getting you know your content strategy in order. It doesn't have to be all day, every time, every channel, but find the right strategy and get yourself set up and then start thinking about, is it the right time for me to start working with influencers are they the right voice for the goal i'm trying to achieve and if they are you know that's the best way to kick it off and if people want to find out more about you connect with you and launch metrics where can they find you and um, we're on social media at launch metrics so just as it sounds launch and metrics um just launch metrics one word and then for me you can find me at allison branger all that's left to say is allison i appreciate your time and this has been the internet marketing podcast take care Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.